Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch. We did Die Hard this weekend for our Christmas holiday special. Um, we're joined with me, that guy, uh, Roy Rogers, and Brady mm-hmm. Larson. Happy spiritual and secular holidays. And uh, <laughs> what is, what's Quantic count as? Spiritual, I oh, think. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know, but I, I think it's probably... It's, oh, you think? It's a religion. It's a religion. Suppose thing. that's good enough. Um, Ross? Oh, hi, Murray? everybody. Yeah. And uh, El Grando Carizion. Hello again. And uh, like I said, we did Die Hard, a 1988 film starring Bruce Willis. And then some chick who's now hot to me again because perms are in, I guess. Bonnie Bedelia? Yeah. From the great 60s film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Don't they? That is supposed to be very sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, yeah, that's her. My dad loves it. Well, that perms are in again, I guess. Every, everybody get a perm for the new year, because uh, everybody will think you're hot. I would be down for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with perms right now. I mean, I wasn't in 1999. But, you were uh, into per- Wait, you had a perm? None. No, I, I liked girls oh, with liked- perms, but not in 1999. Well, but I, I'm turning the worm on that. <laughs> is that Turn like, the worm is, is on that, that like, term is, sounds like the worst <laughs> banger. Is ever that heard. like the bird is the word? Is that <laughs> A lot worse. <laughs> so who wants to blot something up size? I think Ross should plot some <laughs> size this one. All right, Ross, go scene by scene and say what happens in the movie. Scene by scene? Scene by scene. Okay, so... Aeroplane to start, right? Bruce Willis is uh, in an airport, and he's uh, coming from New York City into uh, the City of Angels, and it seems like he has not visited this place before. He sees a couple meeting each other, and he's struck by how open and connected they are in making out in front of everybody. And he makes the statement, Los Angeles. And you can clearly tell... He says tell, California, right? Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. what he says? This is California, right? And uh, he's got that John Wayne voice going on. And uh, he's a little little uneasy about everything that he's seeing so far in his 10 seconds of having been in Los Angeles. So he hops into a cab and he is equally displeased with the amount of forwardness that they probably 21-year-old cabbie has to share with him. Uh, a man by the name of... Argyle. Like the As socks. As in socks, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't really hit it off with this gent. This gent is like really, really uh, easygoing and uh, laid back, but very verbose at the same time. Bruce Willis is trying to deal with his marriage. So uh, Argyle takes him to the tower, Nakatomi Tower, where his wife works in uh, corporate business. 
and uh, he tells Bruce Willis that he will wait for him there. And uh, subsequently, he waits in the garage and listens to loud music and calls his girls on the phone. Bruce Willis goes into Nakatomi Tower and goes and finds his wife. And uh, before he finds her, one of his co-workers has been hitting on his wife, a man by the name of... Uh, Ellis? I don't know his first name. Yeah, they just called him Ellis. We'll call him Ellis Island, just for fun. He winds up very much like Ellis Island. Uh, Yeah. So, Ellis... um, is hitting on her and gives gives Mrs. McLean um, a Rolex, probably. I mean, who knows how expensive, but that expensive, yes, just as expensive as you were just thinking. Um, and then Bruce walks in and he meets the bosses, and the watch gets snubbed in his face by this man he doesn't know and has never met before. And uh, his wife and him go and have a conversation about their relationship and talk about how things have been, how they've missed each other, and then instantly get into a really heated argument, and they fight for five minutes about her moving. And this is 1988, so she's progressive. She wants to have a life of her own where she can work and her job and not live in New York City. And she's open to a very uh, different kind of idea of a relationship from what Bruce wants, which is very blue-collar, very Christian, wife cooking at home. And she's not down with that, so they tear into each other for a little bit. She leaves the room, and then the shooting starts. Very shortly thereafter, a bunch of people arrive in a van and uh, come into the building, kill the security guards, and start shooting people. And Bruce is up in the hotel room, and he realizes something's going down, so he decides to take his gun and uh, figure out what's going on, but that takes a while. So... Rob's giving me a look right now. Oh, he's being Bruce Willis. Okay. <clears throat> so essentially, in that moment, um, Bruce then has to figure out what am I gonna do? Am I gonna run? Am I gonna? Am I gonna hide? And he spends a long time hiding, which was very interesting to me. And about twenty minutes into the hiding, uh, we discover a couple of things. One is that this gentleman named Hans Gruber, who is a German, I guess they call him a terrorist, but he would call himself a business associate, who has no muscles, who's very business-oriented, who's, yep. who's very clean-cut and has a great haircut and fantastic acting, played by Alan Rickman. Yes. <laughs> Isn't there a five-minute time limit on the t- plot I, synopsis? Mr. Yeah, maybe pick it up a little. I'll pick it up. Thank you. Um, so... Basically, what winds up happening is... Uh, <laughs> I thought Grandy was being Zen, so I don't think he'd call us on it this week. He's Zen? Yeah, you're just sitting there cross-legged with your eyes closed going... <laughs> ah, letting this plot synopsis wash over me. It's very thorough so far. Yeah, I like it. It's like like you think? asked for, Rob. It's scene for scene. Exactly. That's why I interrupted it, to show my appreciation. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Is that why you interrupted? <laughs> Have I only known your heart this entire time? Um, so, <laughs> this is great. Uh, Alan Rickman uh, is, takes uh, Mr. Nakatomi, the man that owns the building, into his office. He says, step into my office. And he steps into his office. And uh, Isn't his name Mr. Nakatomi? Yes, sir. Yeah. And so 
he steps into the office and uh, he asks for the code to the security vault so that they can access all of the bear bonds. They have $640 million worth of bear bonds that they would like to access. Unfortunately, Mr. Noctum doesn't want to give this code to him, so Alan Rickman shoots him in the face. And um, once, once Mr. Willis hears a gun go off, uh, played by Mr. Willis, John McClane, hears a gun go off, he decides to take matters into his own hands. He starts snooping around the building. The very thing that was very interesting to me is the very first person he kills is an accident. I thought that was very interesting. Um, we'll talk about that later, but mm. he, the, he kills he kills a man, and um, once he kills a man, he gets a big gun and then sends the body down to the floor and let everybody know, hey, I've got a man, and I've got his gun, and you got to try and stop me. And everybody, one by one, tries to stop John McClane, and John McClane basically picks them off and finds a bunch of faults, gets in communication with a police officer, and is able to distract um, distract this police officer into staying and helping him from the ground floor and getting people to police the scene by way of taking a body and throwing it out the window so that the police officer hasn't been alerted that something is happening at the tower. Um, because the, the entire tower has been policed with people that are working for um, this... German um, uh, anti-war establishment hero Hans Gruber. Bunch of European guys with guns who are good at what they do. Exactly. So him and the police officer, and I don't remember the name of the police officer or the man. Carl Winslow. Carl Winslow. Yeah, and I <laughs> played by Reginald Bell Johnson. Carl Winslow. So. Reginald Vell Johnson decides to uh, help out uh, Mr. McLean, and they have um, walkie-talkie conversations throughout the film about life and about trying to find the bad guys and whether they're going to make it and their careers and failures and a lot of cool stuff. They fill that buddy cop role with these walkie-talkie conversations. Yeah, that's really cool. And then? And then uh, Mr. McLean uh, decides to uh, try and thwart their plans, and at which point he randomly and very interestingly runs into Alan Rickman who is playing the main bad guy and at this point Mr. Rickman decides to pretend to be an American citizen who is one of the captives who has been uh, escaped who has escaped Bill Clay Bill Clay Bill Clay um, <laughs> and Bill but he's more like I'm Bill I'm Clay that's right yeah Bill yeah yeah, I'm doing an accent, yeah. and they had to dub some of this because I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Bill Clay goes with Mister uh, Mister McLean for about five minutes, and then decides, you know what, I'm done with this. Uh, he gets a gun, and he's been given a gun by Mister McLean, and the gun has no bullets in it. So at this point, once again, Mister McLean is on his own, escaping, and uh, more of his men, more of more of Mister. Um, can I pick it up? Yeah, uh, well, I yeah, I'm, I can just finish it up if you want. I was just going to be like, and then Kent Mouse uh, ensues, and then the guy yeah. saves the girl at the end, and she's about to fall, and then uh, Bruce Willis takes off her watch, which uh, Alan Rickman's holding on to. Oh, and then after that, the one guy that he thought he killed, who had a vendetta against him, wanted to beat him up because he killed his brother, uh, comes out of the crowd, and then uh, Carl Winslow gets to shoot him uh, because there was a story earlier on about Carl Winslow accidentally shooting a kid and never wanting to fire his gun again, but now he's been made whole. But also, he has to walk across broken glass, the roof Yay. blows up, Argyle punches a man, and that he 
Those Tapes are in the... a gun to his back using duct tape. I said cat and mouse games. Not only does Argyle punch him It was him Christmas in, Argyle... packaging tape. Oh, yeah, Christmas packaging tape. Ar- Even better. Argyle gets to... Yeah. yeah, Argyle gets to, like, punch a nerdy Urkel-esque African-American stereotype in a movie with two African... With three African-American stereotypes. A cop, uh, a limo driver... And a computer tech. But you so, know, all very those, for being whatever stereotypes they might be, those characters are all like pretty well played and sensitively fleshed out, I thought, yeah. for an action movie. Yeah, I agree with that. So enough of the long synopsis. This is so that's a film. synopsis. We'll have some fun now. See, I, d- I just decided not to go into the ex- exact each cat and mouse game. There's a bunch of cat and mouse games. Lots of Yeah, but, but you got to talk about the taping... Well, we will. Yeah, that's when, it be- when it becomes relative in the talking of the thing. Yeah. Mm, yes. It's not something to break down philosophically. It's something that happens, and it's awesome. True. Oh. I never actually, like, I've seen that scene. I've never seen this movie all the way through, but I've seen that scene a bunch of times, and uh, that's one of the least believable merps for me on the broken glass thing and the da-da-da. Like, we'll have to get into it. Wait, believable? Least believable, like shoot the glass. Now I know he's got bare feet, so now he's gonna have to run acl- across glass, and he's gonna cut up his feet. Like, there's a way to kind of broken glass is not as bad as everybody thinks it is. Like, if you break a bottle at a bar, they'll be like, "Don't touch it. We don't want you to cut yourself." And then it's just like, it's not that hard to deal with broken glass. I know if it's everywhere, you might cut your foot, but you seem to probably be able to figure something out. Yeah, you could just th- shuffle your feet, and they wouldn't get cut by any glass. Yeah, but the way that it was set up in the scene was there were two men, and one was on the right and one was on the left, and he was kind of three quarters. Yeah, of the he had to run left. through the glass. But I mean, like to, his foot was really, really cut. He like, couldn't. He couldn't like a like, deep cut as opposed yeah, to true. just. He couldn't. Yeah. Sc- he couldn't scamper. At any rate, um, yeah, that that's one of my least. Uh, that's one of the, I. I was willing to gloss over it because I don't really care about that that particular plot mm. device that much because blah blah blah. Hmm. But that's interesting. To me, that's one of the best and most iconic and most important to this particular I know it's memorable. We'll, we'll get to why it's, it matters and why it's important after we do Hey, 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 How Do We Like It? How did you like this movie, Brady? Um, I, I think it's great. Uh, and grading this one's hard because like, it's, its breed is the dumb action movie. In fact, most of its ilk, I probably... Hate, but that's because not enough of those cheeky little bastards are like their father. Wait, you hate them or you don't think they're a good movie? I hate them because... But they could still be good movies even though you hate them? No. Let me finish, damn it. Brady, are you saying this is an origin? But I like what you're saying, so I'm interrupting. this, This is, in many ways, a big step on the road to the dumb action heroes that populate the multiplex this day. Except this one is smart and full of heart, and most importantly, it's vulnerable and believable as an actual hero that can die that's not just having CG rocks chucked at its head. Unlike the fifth Die Hard film, which came out earlier this year and was trashed for that exact thing. Correct. Got it. Interesting. Uh, I'll I'll give it an A-, minus because it's me... I mean, I love it. I think it's probably could be the cream of its genre, of the... Like, kind of very simplistic uh, action film. And that's not a bad thing. I took my cookies out of the oven, right? Yeah, I did. Did you? Yeah. Did I turn off the oven? I don't know. I think I did. 
I know I took the cookies out. They were perfect. Mm. Why don't you guys uh, keep going with how you liked it? I'm going to go check on the oven, make sure it's off. Okay. Randy, what, what are your thoughts? Man? I live at a house. I mean, a studio with an oven. Rob's a good cook, too, by the way. He made oh, some... honey baked. <laughs> he made some amazing cookies for us earlier. Sorry. Well, me, uh, I liked it for a lot of the same reasons that Brady liked it. Uh, it was just a great action movie. It, it was what it meant to be and was very good at it. And Bruce Willis was awesome. Uh, yeah, uh, I'd give it a solid A. Nice. Uh, I, uh, this is the third time I've seen this film. I saw, I've seen, I saw it in bits and pieces when I was probably 10 or 11 and probably shouldn't have, but nonetheless, that's what happened. And then I saw it again when I was maybe 16 or 17. And so it's been a little while since I've seen it. And I really do like it. It even has Alexander Godunov in it, the very famous, world-famous ballet dancer who karate kicks the crap out of Bruce Willis for about five minutes. Um, so, you know, uh, I yeah, I gotta say, it's somewhere between the A- and the A, probably the A- right now, because I, I have to see a lot of other movies of its genre to be sure that it is an A. And I haven't seen... I've seen maybe two dozen films of that genre but i know there are a lot more i haven't seen also and to be fair yes this is a really great film for that kind of genre so yeah that feels that feels just about right all right rob thinks this movie gets a b and he really likes it and it's really good and it's really well shot and pretty well acted and it was cool. It kind of lagged a little bit in the middle of the third act, but that's okay uh, because some of those set pieces were cool. <laughs> well done, Rob. Thank you. So that's the end of the Hey, 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 How Do We Like It segment, and so we move on to What's It All About? <laughs> See, I knew this segment was coming, and the first word, well, not word, teen text speak word I have in my what's it all about is LOL because the what's it all about maybe is a bit of a ridiculous question but <laughs> I attempted it anyway so it's about McLean saving the day it's in, at its barest level it is about your big muscled action hero saving the day but he's not as muscled as most uh, and it's sly and how it tweaks a lot of action stereotypes he's, he's pretty big I mean, he's not Schwarzenegger. He's yeah, not even Stallone. Yeah, but I mean, compare him to like Travolta or Nicolas Cage and Face Off or Chow Yun Fat and any of the other John Woo movies. Or, uh... But this was before this. Yeah, but... Uh, well, uh... John Woo was making movies all the way back to the early 80s. But this is way before um, like way before Nick Cage was in any of those or John Travolta was in any of those. Anyway, I'm still talking about what it's all about, Rob. But we'll get to you. <laughs> Rob. Oh, I don't have anything to say. Oh, okay. You're just asking, like, the worst date ever. Just like, what's, like, your big dream? Like, blah, 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 blah. And five minutes later, like, what's yours? Like, get another drink. <laughs> anyway, um, but no, it's, it, but it is about things because, like, 
What makes it a special action movie is how it tweaks a lot of machismo American action stereotypes. And there are subtle ways, one that I've already mentioned, that what happens with the characters kind of supports that. One is the fact that McLean is made to be very vulnerable, which is why whatever kind of realistic scientific quibbles we might have with the broken glass scene, and I'm not even sure I have any, it's important because it's the big iconic moment of Wayne as a vulnerable action hero, as someone who can fall, uh, much more than a Schwarzenegger or Stallone. But also we have terrorists or terrorist types. You know, one of the famous Alan Ar- uh, Alan Arkin, <laughs> Alan Rickman lines in that is like, well, who even said we were terrorists? And so they seem to be kind of at the end of the Cold War because this came out in '88. These Russian, Eastern European, vaguely Cold War fearful types. But in the end, all they end up being are thieves. And I think that's kind of sly that, you know, like you think this is some kind of global conspiracy based on whatever the fears of your times are. But really, most people just do things for money. Most criminals are in it for that motive. And so I thought that that's kind of sly, too. So it tweaks kind of the brainless machismo of most action, which is why most of its ilk doesn't understand or live up to its father's reputation. So that's what it's all about to me. Um, Any, does anybody else have a feeling about what this is all about? Uh, I mean, are we just like almost done? What's it all about? What's it all about? I think it's just it was just a great action movie. I mean... Okay, well, all right. If I'm the only one who has things to say... I I have more. I I have more. I just want you guys to talk. We haven't mentioned Christmas even once, No, okay, I forgot one more... I forgot one more important thing. Brady Grandy has the show. Actually, I just finished, Brady. Yeah, no, I agree. One of of my favorite Christmas movies. Um, But no, no. Also, like, in addition to kind of the sly, subversive way it plays with its genre, while still remaining that genre... um, is that it's it's pretty character driven, and I think that's something I'd really like to see more of. Is and you know we get like movies with a lot of action. Recent movies we've talked about like Gravity and Children of Men, for example, that are more character driven but sprinkle action in. But I'd like to see more action movies that sprinkle character in the way this one does. Mm-hmm. The original Bill Johnson yeah. character and the Bruce Willis character and the Alan Rickman villain, like all are played slyly, which is funny because we don't know that much about them, but. They're, they're kind of humanized to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd like to see more movies that give action heroes that much character. You know, you, you make a good point, Brady. Um, a lot of the people that are in these action movies, especially today, we know that a lot of the market for the actors that get the work in Hollywood is based on uh, what your name is and who you are. It's not based on... How much talent you have, it's based on who you know and how much money are they going to give you and how much money do they think feasibly there's a 60% chance of raking back in at the end of the day. What's the most interesting part about that is they've been starting to, over the last three or four years, almost all of television is now filled with people that are from off-Broadway, Chicago, or Broadway. They're almost all theater performers on TV. And you can you, you can spot them on almost every network. So or I reality think... stars. Yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. So, so hopefully, action films will start to bridge that gap a little bit. Um, they haven't yet, and uh, we'll see what happens. But we know that it's already come the way of TV. TV at this point is more sophisticated than film is in terms of its 
in terms of its brevity of quality performers in one place. If you want to look at the difference between the amount of them in film and TV, it's kind of... Yeah, no, I mean, certainly in this kind of genre, I definitely see that point. Like, uh, yeah, Yeah. TV, uh, you know, Breaking Bad recently even being a good example, even though maybe that's more in that previous thing I said about character with a lot of action sprinkled rather than vice versa. But it's close enough that it's like, yeah, TV I think is better at having like really propulsive, tense filmmaking that like makes sense on a human level. Um, but I still go to film for so soulful I. moments. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah. Also what Ross was saying assumes that, uh, off Broadway is a, is a bastion of talent, which I'm not saying that it's not, I just it takes that for granted. It, I mean, I don't think it takes it for granted. I just think that, that film needs to be more open about who it puts in its movies and it's, and right now it's very, it's a, it's a closed gate. Well, film should it's probably a, be more open about game. who, yeah, about who gets to make films. That, but, but the thing is, too. is, uh, uh, film is open for that. Uh, it's Hollywood that's not open, but I mean, there are people oh, okay. making films every day, you know, all kinds of people who are amateur actors, never acted before who might be ta- very talented, you know, just mm. doing it to do it. You just don't see their movies. You don't hear about them. Rob makes a great point. It is Hollywood. It's, that's a good point. Yeah, um, well, well said. But quickly getting back to what this film is about, uh, my feeling, which I thought I thought Brady was going to touch on this, but uh, I guess he's given his points and didn't. Well, maybe I didn't think about it. I might agree with it. But mm-hmm. I think it's uh, I think it's about the '80s and the um, the loss of the individual. And the idea that the systems are uh, in the '80s is, is basically uh, when the consumerism and just uh, marketing people, uh, mm. you know, being a uh, faceless foot soldier in the bureaucracy of whatever your profession is, mm. started to really take hold as an idea. I mean, uh, uh, which which zombie, which Living Dead movie is it? It was in the '80s in the shopping mall, right? '70s. Oh, that's the, the mall. Seven, That's Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, but late '70s, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Maybe yeah, late 78. 78, yeah, okay, 10 years earlier. Um, but anyway, you know, this whole idea started to crop up during that decade as we come into junk bonds, as we come into investors, as we come in. You know, that, that character Ellis is just like that. Like, baby, come on, yeah, you're a businessman. We're all businessmen. We just do what the businessmen do. Let's just do business, baby, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, and then there's also... Uh, John McClane, the character himself, is the only guy who knows what's going on. He's in the thick of it. He's seen everything happen. Like, it, it's his eyes. And then, uh, like you said, his first kill was an accident. I think Ross yeah. said that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, through his eyes, because he sees everything happens, he becomes involved. And then through his actions, uh, he starts to gain agency. And he's like, well, I guess in for a penny, in for a pound, I can kill these guys. Um, there's even a comment at the beginning where it says, like, you're a police officer. There are rules for police officers, and he kind of goes like, "All right, I guess." He says, "I should, guess, yeah." And he then, says, "You should tell that to my boss." Right, but yeah, <laughs> and, but then they fight. Uh, he doesn't shoot him. They fall into the stairwell, and then he dies. He yeah. breaks his neck, and then he goes, "Well, I guess, I guess the rules are off. I'm an individual now. I'm not part of the police, right?" And yeah. it, it, that dichotomy between him being far and away from the group, and also the the film really drives home. Um, with the the FBI comes in and follows the terrorist playbook and fucks everything up. Before that, the police chief is not listening to Carl Winslow and fucking everything up. Uh, before that, or I mean, after that, the news organization is coming in and th- this guy's just out for himself and uh, trying to like win in the news agency. Like, 
the uh, well, maybe that's talking about individuals. But you know what I'm trying to say? The bureaucracy of the news thing. Like, they're just all fucking everything up. They're talking about it like, oh, here's the Helsinki thing. This is the next thing that's going to happen. You know, the newscaster doesn't even know, like, what's going on or where Helsinki is. Um, the other guy breaks in, basically uh, gets the nanny to let him into the house and clues in Alan Rickman that... Um, on the children. Okay, there's a scene, I don't think we touched on it when we were doing the plot synopsis because there's just so many individual scenes because it's yeah. a fast-moving action movie. But there's a scene where um, this newspaper reporter guy who's played by the dude who plays also the dickhead, the pencil dick or whatever in <laughs> fucking Ghostbusters. I don't know the name of that actor. But he's always just a smarmy asshole. And he he, um, he comes into the house and he's like, he wants to talk to... Um, you know, the kids of one of the people who is being held hostage, which is um, his wife, John McCain's... Mc, John McCain? McCain? McCl McLean. There McLean. we go. <laughs> <laughs> John McCain's a politician. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, he's, yeah, he's a guy, whitey, corn good of politicians. Um, no, John McClane, um, but he wants to talk to his wife's kids because he doesn't know he's there but anyway it ends up fucking everything up basically all the agencies all the bureaucracies fuck everything up the only people who can get anything done are the individuals uh carl winslow uh john mcclain and uh hans gruber and who even though he has an organization underneath him he's actually planning on blowing up the entire building and faking his own death so he's basically being an individual too, he doesn't give a fuck about any of the people who are working with him and, either. Oh yeah, can I and, chime in something here? Yeah. And, and first off, I, I throw Holly Gennaro in there too. I mean, the mm. entire source of the conflict is that Holly Gennaro, you know, and she's never made it's never made out. And I like this that like, oh, like she's dumb. Like McLean's completely right. Like she shouldn't have gone off on her own. Yeah. Like she's she makes at least smart decisions in the terrorist situation mm. or in the hostage situation, I yeah. should say. Because um, I buy Rickman's thing that they're not terrorists. Yeah, well, she well she has power in that, but she also you know seeps into the bureaucracy of the large corporation that allows all this to happen. But no, yeah, what I like though is kind of with the Gruber character. I feel like his entire thing, his entire actions are like a heavy critique on collectivism, because the news when they're reporting on him he's known as belonging to this organization, this kind of terrorist, probably communist associated given the times yeah. organization. And, but then they also say at the end, but he was kicked out. Like he actually wasn't a very good member. And so he's using his affiliation and America's fear of this kind of person, this kind of Eastern European terrorist type as his way to get away as an individual because of their fear of him as part of this shadowy collective He's going to just get away with a bunch of money. That's all they want in the end. These people are using terrorism as a guise to just have a cool bank robbery. Yeah, somebody... Like, they're full capitalists. Uh, they're just, all in capitalists. Just, just to, like, uh, say something really quickly about that. Some, one of the lines that they have in the film, Holly Gennaro says, you're just a... Uh, you're just you just think you're you're a good bank robber. Yeah, you're just like a petty thief. A petty thief. And he's like, no, I'm an excellent thief. I'm an excellent thief, yeah. Yeah, really, really good point. Yeah. Well, I think that maybe touches upon most of our uh, what's it all about, and maybe we should go do our IMDb game for the week. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Let's take a little break to collect our thoughts. I had to click that shit like five times to make it go. 
fuck this piece of shit computer that I built. God, whoever built this shit should be fucking shot. Uh, can I borrow a gun, I'll look Rob? into it. I could... Grandy. Is everybody ready? We're ready. Yeah. Yeah, shmon. Okay. Katniss Everdeen and Peta Malark. <laughs> Brady? Um, the Hunger Games Catching Fire? That's it. Damn you. Yes, damn me. I was going to wait for more of it to come out. Tommy Rutt. All right, Brady has one point. A magical nanny comes to work for a cold banker's Rob. un... Yes. Uh, Mary Poppins. Yes. Well mm. done. Yay, Rob has one. Through a series of freak occurrences, a group of actors shooting a big-budget war movie are forced to become... Brady, Tropic Thunder. Yes. Mm. Oh, I've never seen that. An angel helps a compassionate... Brady, <laughs> it's a wonderful life. Oh, yes. From 1946. <laughs> Ron Burgundy is San Diego's... <laughs> Brady <top> Larson! <laughs> Anchorman. Two. Stop picking ones I haven't seen. No. Uh, Granny. Rob. Anchorman. Uh, um, the title's longer than that. Can you a lot? Can can Rob? I think we're both wrong because we. I think fucked up. Rob. Y yes. Anchorman two. The legend continues. You're all wrong. You know it's the first Anchorman. Two's not out for What's like. The first one fucking cold then. The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Oh, I, I've never seen either of them, so I have no idea. Uh, the first one is absolutely hysterical. Anyway, yeah, it's uh, th funny. Brady 3, Rob 1. Is that where we're at? Um, yeah. Set in unoccupied Africa during the early days of World War II, an American expatriate meets a former lover. Rob. Rob. Oh, American expatriate. Shit. Would that, you that, like me to finish the sentence? No, would not. No. Nah, you buzzed He's in. I buzzed in. Name. I get ten seconds or something. Uh, okay, go for it. I, I think your intuition is correct. Uh, and uh, these are a uh, long ten. I think it's uh, correct, Rob. Fucking Ned last king of Sc Scotland. <laughs> not right. No. Brady out of Africa. No. Uh, I'm not gonna have a clue, but you should continue. I might. Okay. All right. Let's um, oh, fin can I finish the synopsis here. <laughs> Okay, so I'll, I'll just start rereading it, since Grandy's the only one that still gets a chance. So, set in unoccupied Africa during the early days of World War II, an American expatriate meets a former lover with unforeseen complications. Yeah, I know. I know, man. I heard set in Africa. And, and then, I, yeah. I, and I heard patriot, and I thought patient, and I was like, oh, American. Patient. <laughs> Uh, once again, I don't have a clue. Casablanca. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. From 19. Just to let everybody know, Brady leaned all the way into the mic for that one and then just went, oh, but really he was saying, holy shit. <laughs> it was beautiful and yeah, funny. That's, that's a great movie. And we. Years after her aunt was murdered in her home, a young woman moves back into the house with her new husband. However, he has a secret which he will do anything to protect, even if that means driving his wife insane. Brady? Rosemary's baby? No. This is one of my if mom's If no one's willing to buzz favorites. in, we can ask to hear it again, I think. Okay. Yeah, let's hear it again. Y years after her aunt was murdered in her home, a young woman moves back into the house with her new husband. However, he has a secret which he will do anything to protect. Rob. He Yes. Rebecca. 
No, but that is a great guess. That is a great guess. I'll finish reading it. He has a secret which he will do anything to protect, even if that means driving his wife insane. Mrs. Danvers! <laughs> it's probably based off of that movie, actually. It's a great guess, though. Mrs. Danvers is totally a lesbian. I have no idea what that <laughs> one is either. Oh, my God. You just said that. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. No, no, no. That's Gaslight. It is Gaslight from 1944. Good job, Grandy. Okay. One of the film noir. One of the first. One of the first American film noir. One of the first film noir thrillers. I'm tied yeah, up right, with great. you, I think, Rob. In the uh, United yep, States. You are. 311, and we're playing to five. All right, cool. <laughs> All right. All right, we got a game. Let's do this. Yeah, we're moving. We're moving and grooving and listen to the sound of the swinging 70s with Stephen Merritt. <laughs> you listening? No, Stephen Merritt's the guy from Magnetic. Oh, Stephen. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. I love that I'm doing this. All right. <laughs> he loves himself, everybody. This is funny. All right, ready? Luke Skywalker, George. Ready? <laughs> Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. No. Rob. Rob. The Return of the Jedi. <laughs> no. <laughs> really? They say his name in the plot synopsis for the first one? Grandy, would you like to take a shot? Wait, which ones did you guess? Joins forces with a Jedi Knight, a cocky pilot, a Wookiee, and two droids to save the universe from the Empire Empire's world-destroying battle station while also... It's Star Wars A uh, New Hope. That's correct. <laughs> Actually, it's just called Star Wars. Three, two, one, no! <laughs> this is a race. This is a race. This is good. We'll give it to you, even though it is just called Star Wars. It is also the coolest fucking movie poster I've ever seen. You know, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. So he, really he actually yeah, got it. But the name, right? the Didn't title of the movie, the way it's no, he so got it. No, the, no, no. The name of the title as it's billed. If you see it on, like, if you're watching TV or anything and it's playing, it just comes up as Star Wars. No, I know. But and the other ones come up as The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, not Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back. But Grandy got it right. I'm, we're, we're counting that, of course. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. Uh, Grandy, two, me, one, Brady, three. Okay. Um, Try not to use ones but that have the character's name in them. <laughs> that was perfect, though. That's so good for viewers. Rob is mad because he has slipped into third. <laughs> Rob's, well, Rob had to. It's all your rules, needed, Rob. You just needed the to red look. man's going to take it out on the dog. Pam! <laughs> <laughs> are you? Pam is Rob. I'm really drunk. Why are you, Pam? An Eastern European girl goes to America with her young son, expecting to be like a ho- expecting it to be like a Hollywood film. Can and you reread it? An Easter an East European girl goes to America with her young son, expecting it to be like a Hollywood film. This is a movie that at least two of you have seen. No more than just the synopsis, dude. Sorry. Can you read it again? An East European girl goes to America with her young son, expecting it to be like a Hollywood film. Brady, the son? No. That is a good guess, though. And I haven't seen that. Rob, um, uh, where the wild things are. No. Uh, I have no idea and don't really want to venture a guess. 
Oh, wait, no, no, no. It's Dancer of the Dark, I think. All right, I got the next movie. A quartet of mutated humanoid turtles. Rob. Yes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. A man must struggle to travel home for Thanksgiving with an obnoxious... Planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes. Damn, that was so close. From 1987. <laughs> Four. Rob, were you going to get that one? No. Uh, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just trying to get him before you. <laughs> Give me time to think. Saw the glint in your eye. I need, to, I need to not have such tells, you know? This is good. In a dystopic and crime-ridden Detroit, a terminally wounded cop returns to the force. Brady, like, RoboCop. Yes. I talked earlier about the homogeny, how that's like another structure of, uh, you know, bureaucracy that basically fucks shit up, and they don't really know what they're doing, and, you know... It's all tied to the, the cops, the FBI, the uh, the guy on the TV is going like, now my book, which explains exactly how all hostage scenarios uh, follow the one like in Helsinki, uh, Finland. And then the other guy's like, oh, is it Finland? I thought it was uh, Sweden. No, it's Finland, you idiot. And like, you know, basically all these bureaucracies and stuff where it's just about playing the structure and like, you know, getting into your junk bonds or climbing your corporate ladder, right. you're, you're losing all your agency by being involved in that. And so her punching uh, the representation of that uh, industry basically, you know, affirms her rejecting of the thing that um, John McClane has freed her from. All right. So at the end of the 80s, we bitch slap communism and capitalism. And whip our dicks out and go for a Well, I was, I was talking before about how it, it's kind of an ongoing thing, and I think it, it No wonder really, it's an R. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There was always a rumor going around my high school about this one guy who cock-slapped a woman in the middle of uh, the mall, and I don't think I believe it now. At any rate, uh, yeah, I think it's an ongoing thing. I think it's still something that we're battling with now, and it's this sort of... Uh, it's this sort of thing that we started to talk about when um, the economy started ramping up and becoming, um, you know, unsustainable, which happened uh, kind of as women were entering the mar uh, workplace. Now, I do, I'm not saying that, like, women entering the workplace is bad and women shouldn't be empowered. What I'm saying is the reason women enter the workplace and why that accommodation was made by Let's say the powers that be or just the structure as it stood 18, up until that point in time. 1870s about, yeah. No, no, no. 1960s. 1970s. Well, I mean, women and their right to vote and, and working in the workplace was 1920s. 1870s was when it started, but it didn't happen on a mass scale till the end of the 1800s. 1920s is when the women got the right to vote, right? Um, they or abolished. Just before there, and then the Women's Temperance Union voted in. The Volstead Act. Yeah, that was uh, that was like 1919, 1920. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. So, at any rate, um, second wave feminism though was kicking around in the 70s, and third wave feminism is now, right? Th this is my understanding. I'm just going to. That sounds it. about right. But anyway, uh, women started to work a lot more in the late 70s, 
to uh, late 80s. Yeah. That, that's the 10-year period where women started to work a lot more. And what I'm saying is um, that we start to kind of see all this in film and, and these kind of inklings, maybe not uh, on the nose, but the thing is is that uh, women had to start to work because our economy started ramping up too fast and debt started accruing, and now you need two people working in the household in order to this, that. And I know I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent here, but the cosine to the tangent to the Sokotoa is <laughs> that film reflects the exact tensions that everybody is uh, basically seeing the ramifications of. And uh, action film is exactly that, is, you know, talking about uh, blowing up destruction and uh, just kind of the agency of one man, um, which might be a rejection against feminism, I'm not saying, but usually action movies are the agency of one man, right? Uh, like, even in this, she's kind of doesn't really have any agency other than they try to appease us by giving her, like, a little... She walks in and goes, like, we need toilet shit places and uh this pregnant lady needs a, a a couch to lie down on and alan rickman goes hmm yes i'll do that is that okay <laughs> and then yeah but anyway that's my tangent and that's what i think about the uh manacle of a rolex on her wrist it gets detached and then she punches the reporter i see so so is she symbolically rejecting feminism um, I think action movies are symbolically rejecting feminism, but kind of that's a different topic. Um, but this one definitely falls into it in that action movies kind of just give the agency to one man um, in a way of basically rejecting the idea that... Um, I, I mean, the guy's got to blow up a thing or put a thing in a hole, like uh, our girlfriends were saying last night most of the time, right? He drops a body down a shaft. He drops a bomb down a shaft. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't read that much significance into like. That's just kind of how. That's just kind of how shafts work. <laughs> shafts and gravity work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point too. I, I don't. I don't read a lot of phallic. I I anything. think the action movie in general came to the rise in the late seventies and uh, uh, late late seventies to the late eighties. Because of its uh, not necessarily rejection of feminism, but just the insecurity of uh, men feeling like they were losing their agency. Yeah, but then this is the this, if anything, I would argue is a rebuke to that because one, the uh, his issue with her taking this job isn't the running conflict throughout the movie. It's the introduction. It's the thing they argue about when everything's hunky dory before real problems, you know, loom their head. And in the course of that. You know, we see her, like, really shine amongst the office, and we see him have regrets about his position. She has three minutes. Now, granted, well, no, granted, maybe there's a bit of a meeting in the middle, and, like, maybe that's a product of kind of backward 80s thinking, but it's still, this is a movie about the man kind of losing his dick a little bit. You know, he gets his feet cut up. It's it's a little bit of a rebuke to masculinity. In fact, it's a big rebuke to masculinity. There are pointed references to this kind of, like, oh, you you think you're a cowboy, and, you know, I, I hope this isn't any kind of homophobic joke. I think it's just kind of a, a funny, interesting joke is, you know, Wayne's character, uh, or no, Willis's character says, like, you know, actually, I, I consider myself Roy Rogers. Like, sort of, like, not this John Wayne type, but maybe a more, like, dapper kind of action hero. Because he's a reasonable action hero who gets by on his brains, not through his great bulk. And he does it in a kind of halting way. Not in a way that's uh, invincible and kind of plows through everything. 
So it is, uh, but it, I think it does have issues of feminism and masculinity on its mind, which I think makes it better than most action movies. I think that's just a subtext that was running through the culture at the time and that this film doesn't really address it at all. Directly. I think you'll find plenty of movies that don't address it at all if you want to talk about I mean, that directly. don't address it at all. It doesn't direct, it doesn't address, sorry, it doesn't direct feminine addressly. It doesn't direct feminism directly at all. Please tell me how it does. Well, I think it deals... I think it very much has in its mind the conflict between outdated, very archetypical, very American, machismo-rooted ideals of masculinity and, you know, the central opening plot is that clashing with a new ideal of feminism where a woman... You know, because they're not divorced. Keep in mind, they're not divorced. She's left New York and gone to this to Los Angeles because she's been offered a huge major position in a corporation see i think my point is that her being offered that major huge position in a um a corporation doesn't have anything to do with feminism has more to do with the homogenizing and taking the individual out of the individual space which is the family or the home life or the uh or the ability to provide for one's own and thus putting them thrusting them into a bureaucracy so not about feminism but just about thrusting her into a bureaucracy and that once again is uh on the mind of the film because of the fact that now two people need to work in order to keep up with you know the fact that you need to spend more and more money to stay alive especially in places like la and new york the two cities mentioned in the film yeah but don't you think oh let me try maybe i can (laughs) maybe ill-advisedly just step into the shoes of a feminist uh don't you think this position of well, the largely male-dominated corporate culture is homogenizing and kind of soul-sucking. If I was a feminist, maybe I'd say, well, that kind of position is the kind of position a man can afford to take. I'm just lucky to be able to like make it into a high position without having to worry about, oh, is this shackling? Is the monetary soul-sucking nature of modern corporate life a soul-sucking venture? And I, that's why I think Holly Gennaro is a fully humanized character. Yeah, no, she's fully humanized. She just has no agency really in the film other than to maybe give her like a two-minute piece, piecemeal like, oh, okay, I'm going to ask for these two things, and you, Alan Rickman, are going to go, hmm, yes, because I'm going to kill everybody in the building anyway. Anyway, Ross had something to say. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I, have see, I see any themes of... Um, uh, femininity versus masculinity i do see that in the very beginning there's a struggle for her to gain some independence in her life and um also there's the but i would say there are a lot of themes in this that are directed specifically towards men and what it means to be a man and what it means to be successful and that that is primarily in this film directed towards men but that there is a shout out given to women saying, hey, you know, we're moving up too. It's not just it's not just the men anymore. And what it means to be a man has changed. And that is very clear in the film. They, they deal with that directly so far as in Bruce Willis and him not being as big and as bulky and as strong as a lot of their action heroes, which I would agree with. And uh, so far as in Alan, Alan Rickman knowing not, you know, a single bit of physical combat except how to shoot a gun. And he's not strong at all. He's just incredibly intelligent. Um, there's a lot of um, and, and and all the old archetypes. You know, who are the rest of the men in the film? 
They're all the old archetypes, the old businessmen that get shot, the old assassins. What happens to all of them? They die. So very interesting differential between the old age and the new age. So that's what I saw. Okay, I'll go with that. But I also want to point out that the uh, the power that she gets and that she is able to give, A, she's only able to get it once the head of the corporation has been killed, and B, the only thing that she actually brings to the table for the hostages is, is comfort and nurturingness, like for a pregnant lady and, you know, the ability for people to poop nicely. Um, and in, it in no way solves the problem at hand, so that kind of falls back into the old archetypes. But, yeah, but the entire movie spends its entire time criticizing most of the people trying to solve the problem at hand because they're incompetent. No, no. It's uh, criticizing the homogenized bureaucracy of doing it by the book instead of dealing with an individual's problem on an individual's basis. Well, in a sense, she is looking more toward individual kind of uh, making the situation She's definitely outside the bureaucracy. That uh, that I will give you. I mean, because the bur- head of the bureaucracy that she is involved in gets killed in like the f- third scene or fifth scene or whatever. Yeah, no, I I know. Uh, I mean, I, and obviously there's. <laughs> anyway, okay, that's fine. I I agree with what Ross said about how it uh, you know it takes archetypes and it does uh, slaughter them off and then. Uh, John McClane kind of doesn't fit into the he's, he's as you said not the typical archetypal character like he is he does have weaknesses he can be killed he does get worried you know he does confide in uh, what's his face also by the way if I were the villain and I wanted to be really villainous when he's trying to talk to Carl Linslow I would just bust in the middle like I bust in the middle of Brady shit <laughs> so cowboy, you gotta pay me back. No, you gotta pay me back home. <laughs> yeah. I'm Hans Gruber. <laughs> I'm Hans Gruber, bitch. Fuck you. I don't want you guys to bond. That's doing good things for his psychic ego. I'm, I'm get the fuck I'm, off this phone. <laughs> I'm gonna cut open a walrus and put it on my belly and wear walrus. a Santa suit, and I'm gonna be you for Halloween. Carl no, a walrus. <laughs> walrus. Oh my terrible James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> we got a learning disability. Quite right. Uh, do we have more to say, uh, Grandy? You haven't talked that much. Do you want to say anything? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, it was a it was a great action movie. Uh, I think you guys are reading into the feminism thing too much. Although the way Brady described it, I could see how that's a something that they did on purpose but it's too um, healthy yeah, I, I was just it, saying that it yeah, doesn't address it didn't get in the way of the action at all because it was such a subtle thing yeah like, but them mentioning the watch at the beginning and it falling off him had to be something and i think brady's right about it like i like that what did brady say about it well, well the okay. same thing i said yeah i like that there are levels of like vulnerability and masculinity to be read into it but mostly it does like that's there to be read but it's a great action movie because mostly it gooses the fucking action. If you think the guy can be killed, your action is actually interesting because the guy can be killed. Grandy's just defending you because he thinks I'm browbeating you too hard. <laughs> oh, Wilson. Anyway, uh, we're going to do rank it and then we'll be back. <laughs> Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up!
bitch! Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody. We're back with our... Well, we're here with our ranking. Yeah, yeah. So... You gotta work Who wants to say what we're doing? Uh, Brady. Okay, because we chose Die Hard in honor of the Christmas season. We're gonna do our top seven movies that have uh, Christmas predominantly featured in their plot. My number seven is Home Alone. Ah! Uh, Macaulay Culkin, who's uh, very near and dear to my heart because he hangs out with Christina Ricci, who's very near and dear to my heart. And that's all i got to say. You feel like if you could meet Culkin... Then the Ricci step would just be a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah. I mean, if I really wanted to meet either of them, I probably could easily do that if I just dedicated all my time and effort to it. We should I mean, wouldn't that. it be as simple as calling somebody who I know who might know them, and if they don't know them, and saying, well, then who do you know who might know them? And just doing that like six times, and then I should meet somebody who knows them and be like, can you introduce me? I don't know. I mean, if you want to meet anybody, I think that's the simplest way to do it. Sounds about right, man. Uh, anyway, uh, Ross, what's your number seven? Um, my number seven. <coughs> my number seven. I forgot to say that we have Ross and Grandy here, but I figured that would be self-evident eventually. But then I thought I'd interrupt Ross and say it anyway. Ross, we what's your number seven? Um, my number seven is... Um, it's the nightmare before Christmas. Um, I, I have Ross the, is ranking this on the fly. I just got it. It's done. The nightmare before Christmas. Um, <clears throat> it's a really good movie. I saw it a long time ago. I need to rewatch it, which is why it's all the way down at number seven. I don't exactly have a lot to say about it other than it's got incredible animation and great story, a lot of comedy. It's mostly done uh, old school style, frame by frame, which people don't do anymore. And it's traditional film. It just beat out Love Actually for me, which was my number eight, but um, which is a great love story. But um, yeah, Night Before Christmas. Oh well, yeah. then <clears throat> my number seven is going to be The Grinch Who Stole Christmas because uh, it's a great classic uh, Christmas movie, uh, and Doctor Seuss is awesome. I think it really grabs Christmas for. It's fun. I agree. And um, because Grandy just listed one of his, which is a, a shorter animated film, I need to give honorable mention props for three animated awesome short films, one of which is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. The other, the uh, the old like claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from Rankin Bass, which, by the way, that abominable snowman... Like Amazing. haunted my dreams as a kid. Incredible. With the eyes. Incredible. Is one with the heat miser? Uh, yeah, there yeah. is one with the yeah, heat miser. That's amazing, yeah. And then the other one is The Snowman, which is a beautiful film from the 80s, like 30 minutes long. Super sad, but like awesome and magical. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. Hella recommend. Uh, so I'm afraid I had to leave all these great shorts off my list, and they were all right at the door. Uh, but. 
I had to do it so I could what have does my that mean num- right at the door. They were right at the door of number seven. Oh, I see. They were just like pounding. They're like, we're number eight, nine, and ten. But Bad Santa held out because Bad Santa, uh, even just talking about it now, is making me smile. Like, Holy so shit! <laughs> like, it's just like, it's a, a dirty, fucking, funny ass Christmas movie from actually a really good director. Uh, the guy who made like uh, Ghost World and he did the Crumb documentary. And just, yeah, he's, like, smart about making this thing, like, as dirty and fucking awful and stupid as ever. And, like, uh, any time when they're in the boxing ring and the three of them punch each other's nuts in sequence, it's just like, you are dog shit. Your soul is ugly. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I have to give props to something that is, like, this gleefully hateful and in the end is a magical Christmas movie, too. Like, and, the, and the establishing shot has an alcoholic Santa Claus throwing a bottle of whiskey at a car window and it shatters. Oh, God. I, I love things that actually manage to have it both ways. <laughs> Fuck yes. Cool. My number six is Miracle on 34th Street because uh, I've seen it. It's all right, but it's not that good. But uh, <laughs> it's fine. I couldn't make room on my... Oh, no, I could. I haven't seen it. It's my number six too, Rob. <laughs> it's a really adorable film and really sweet and very innocent. And the guy that plays Santa Claus is a great actor and everybody else are pretty much new. I believe he actually plays Chris Kringle. Chris, uh, thank you. Thank you. He plays Chris Kringle. And uh, the object of whether or not he is Santa Claus goes to trial. And it goes... Now everyone thinks I've seen it. And the, uh, <laughs> and the, <laughs> the goal of... Uh, the goal of the lawyer that is t- that is against him in the, in the trial uh, goes to his moral fiber and has to um, put his daughter up on the stand, and it becomes a question of his daughter's belief and his own belief. And by the end of the movie, he's changed his belief and believes in Santa. It's a great movie. Um, most of the other actors in it are unknown and haven't been in much, but the guy that plays Chris Kringle is great. So. Grandy, what's your oh. number six? Uh, well, my number six is going to be the Muppets Christmas Carol. Because uh, the Muppets are great, and um, it's very Christmassy. What more can you say? I must say that I have not seen the Muppets Christmas Carol yet. And what's your number six, Brady? if you want. Um, my number six is a, uh, a great animated movie that is too often credited to Tim Burton but actually belongs to the herb of the great, like the god at this point of stop motion animation, Henry Selleck, the guy who brought us uh, James and the Giant Peach and Coraline um, and yeah, who God willing will be doing lots of great work from here on out because he is like where it's at. Uh, and yeah, it's the nightmare before Christmas. Uh, it's fantastic. It's some of the best music, maybe the best music Danny Elfman's ever recorded. Uh, it, I, I freaked Rob out once our freshman year in college by singing all of this is Halloween. Uh, I, yeah, it's heartfelt. I mean, mostly freaked me out by singing that after getting me really, 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 really drunk, but he was drunker as future events proved. Yeah. This movie's fantastic. Uh, 
Like this, I don't know what to say. Fantastic animated movie. I want to watch it right now. Nightmare Before Christmas, number six. Well, I guess that brings us to my number five, which is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, because heart grows three times bigger, and that just sounds like a medical mystery. Uh, Ross, what's your number five? Um, my number five, before I give you that, I want to give a shout-out to what didn't make it since Brady did, and I, I realized this movie, I grew up with it, and it was haunting and mesmerizing as a, a Christmas toy, the Christmas toy, which is a movie about toys. This is where the idea for Toy Story came from. Um, and it's about toys that when adults are around, they can't move. And when adults are gone, they move around and have their own life. But if they get caught, then they can no longer be alive anymore. And it is an amazing film from the early eighties. It's a uh, British stop, stop, go animation and just incredible film. So I wanted to give a shout out. My number five is a Christmas story. You'll shoot your eye out. Um, I laughed a million times watching that. Every time I see it, I'm reminded of my parents. I love it. <laughs> And just the whole idea of Santa Claus like putting his boot to the face of a little child, alcoholic Santa Claus, ho, 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 like Brady was mentioning, having that cake and eating it too in a movie. It's a brilliant film. It really is. I mean, it's just got just the whole mess and smell of the 1950s America and how flawed that was and putting that into a movie. Great. Love it. Well, my number five is Die Hard. And it's not a super Christmassy themed movie, but most of the people who talk about Christmas movies mention Die Hard, and it's an awesome movie. And Christmas being enough for people to name it. So it's my number five. All right. Um, I'll say I left Die Hard off because I just saw it. If, if I'd counted it, it probably would have been at my number six spot, I think. Uh, yeah, because yeah, Die Hard is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we just watched it. Um, but, all right, so there are a couple of movies here that are going to come up that aren't very specifically about Christmas, but that feature the holiday season as part of their plot very heavily. And this is the first of them, but I'm counting it because, and I'm counting it where I left off movies that maybe were more peripherally about Christmas, like Catch Me If You Can where he gets caught on Christmas and he always talks to the guy on Christmas. But I'm going to include In Bruges because I think it's a great movie and I think it's wintry wonderland Christmas vibe uh, because it's about two fugitives on the run or one fugitive on the run and his mentor going with him who go to the sleepy fairy tale town of Bruges in Belgium to hide out around the Christmas season. And it, it fits the Christmas feel because it's a lot about these kind of religious notions of guilt and uh, forgiveness and sin. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like, I think it fits a Christmas movie in terms of its tone. And uh, it's easily the best thing I've ever seen Colin Farrell do. And uh, Brendan Gleeson is fantastic. And it's going to be uh, one of the major points in the career of, Martin McDonough, who I think is going to be a major writing talent going forward. So, yeah, uh, if you haven't seen him, Bruges, fantastic movie. Rob? All right, you goddamn blowhard. Stop talking so goddamn much. <laughs> we were playing games in the background like a teacher's, you know, like kids in the back of a teacher's class when they talk too much. 
That's what we were doing. We were throwing shit at each other, you know, like boys do. Like real shit. Like good. human fecal matter. Who won? It's not a game that you play to win. I think you, you won because you weren't playing, Brady. You play to not lose. <laughs> 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 um, at any rate, uh, we're on number, what, four? Snowman. It's awesome. And four is my favorite number, so that might even rank higher than number one. It was going to be my number one, but then I decided that something else was my number one, so I put it at four, and then merp. <laughs> Ah, uh, Ross, your turn. Uh, my number four is in Bruges. Um, it's an amazing movie uh, about about a lot of things. Like it does take place with a foreshadow and a in the background. It has all of the um, themes of a holiday season happening, and it also is about people in desperate situations with very little options doing the best they can with their lives to make the best of the lives that they have. It's got a great um, performance by Ray Fiennes, who is able to channel a lot of the work he did after the very first appearance as Voldemort, and he uses a lot of the same work that he did there in this movie and does a great job. And it's got um, Colin Farrell in his best performance and only second to Heath Ledger that year in terms of supporting actor work. And just did a fantastic job. And Brendan Gleeson is hilarious and and uh, heartwarming. And um, it's a freaking fantastic movie about people with little and uh, how they make the most of it and redeeming themselves. Good sir. Grandy. Oh, uh, my number four? Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, I love the stop motion style of videos uh, and stuff um and uh it's a cool story uh lots of uh yeah i like it nightmare before christmas definitely my number four <laughs> oh how about you brady what do you think about your number four uh okay my number four could have gone higher could have gone lower and that is the way with frank motherfucking capra uh, he of the Capricorn, the old Spielberg, Spielberg's god daddy. Um, Word. Fantastic, sentimental, sometimes overly sentimental, maybe in the early portions, but like by the end, the it's Capra and his spell is unique. And uh, yeah, by the end of the tale of George Bailey, who wishes that he wasn't born, you've seen one of the most touching Twilight Zone episode you'll ever see. and uh, <laughs> It's wonderful. It's a wonderful movie and uh, a Christmas classic, and I, I hope it always will be. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> now we can read Rob's number three for him while he's off using the restroom. and then. But Rob and I will always laugh. Like, <laughs> Just I, I love It's a Wonderful Life, and like sincerely I believe in it, but we always laugh about this Beavis and Butthead joke. <laughs> from when we were kids where they're like watching the end of it and then Jimmy Stewart's like oh, oh, oh hi Mary uh, all these kids gave me uh, or all these people gave me money so I wouldn't uh, kill myself and then they just paused and was like Christmas sucks <laughs> <laughs> and how oh it's so that's wonderful I love it it's Rob no my number three is uh, Christmas Story because it's awesome mm. Ross my number three is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and I'm normally not a favorite of 
I don't tend to put cartoons um, above live action films, but for whatever reason, probably because every single frame of this movie is remembered from people that are, yeah, people that are from the ages of 40 down to the age of probably 12 year olds. Everybody knows every frame of this film. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, one of the best animated, one of the 30 best animated films ever. Um, it is. What's a film frame, Ross? What's a film frame? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely one of the the best Christmas films ever made. And the music is iconic and it is hilarious and great. Yeah, I love it brings Dr. Seuss to life in a way that hadn't ever been done before. Well, what's a film frame? One frame of film where there's a specific shot and... Oh, a still image that makes up a piece of a motion picture. Yes. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Some people might not know that, man. I don't know. For sure. Yeah, yeah, you never know. It's like if you said, oh, Elias, then we'd have to explain who Elias was. Yeah. I'm just being a dick, sorry. Grandy? Mm -hmm. It's what's okay. your number? My number three. It's all good. Sorry. Grandy, it's what's okay. your number? My number three. It's all good. Wait, that middle finger is not a three. <laughs> Wait, that middle finger is not a three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it uh, Bad Santa. Uh, such a good movie. <laughs> Let's call it. Uh, yes, I yes. saw it when I was pretty young, and Bad Santa, yes. uh, such a good movie. <laughs> kind of thought it was so good that I kept looking to. Yes, I saw yes. it when I was pretty young, and for it. Nice. And uh, kind of thought it was so good that I kept looking to. <laughs> it's a, it's an excellent movie. Number three, Bad Santa. For it. Nice. And, uh... Brady, what's your number three? Okay, uh... My <laughs> it's, a, it's an excellent movie. Number three. Bad Santa. My number three, this is the toughest one to talk about, because I've only seen it once, and, like, of any of these Christmas movies... Brady, what's your number three? Okay, uh... My <laughs> of any of these Christmas movies, this one is the... Den my number three... This is the toughest one to talk about because I've only seen it once, and like of any of these Christmas movies, exist. And uh, I think it might have come out in two thousand eight or so. <laughs> of any of these Christmas movies, this one is the dent. So it's pretty recent, maybe even two thousand nine, and it's called a Christmasist. And uh, I think it might have come out in two thousand eight or Christmas Tale, and it's a movie from France. And as I remember, though, it's pretty recent, maybe even 2009, and it's called A Christmas. It's about a French, a big French family's Christmas, and the mother has, like, a serious bone cancer and may or may not miss tale. And it's a movie from France, and as I remember, and she's kind of gathering, like, her estranged clan together, kind of Royal Tenenbaum style, and they're, like, just, like, really, it's about a French, a big French family's Christmas, Really thorny webs of like guilt and doubt and even attraction and the mother has like a serious bone cancer and may or may not live and she's kind of gathering like her estranged clan together kind of royal tenenbaum style 
and they're like just like really thorny webs of like guilt and doubt and even attraction between people who shouldn't be attracted. Like it really is kind of like the Tenenbaums in a way, but it's very, very character driven. It's got fantastic actors like uh, Matthew Amalric from Diving Bell and the Butterfly and the uh, brilliant uh, Cath- uh, Catherine Deneuve, uh, who's like maybe one of the best French actresses ever to live. And she plays the matriarch. And uh, yeah, I need to see this one again. It's it's a fantastic, like, rich human film. When did that come out? I, I want to say 2009 now, but I could be wrong. I, I'm probably wrong. But it was in that window. In that window of time. Okay, my number two on this episode of Rank It, which is clocking in at 22 minutes. Um, Just saying. Mickey's Christmas Carol. That's the Disney version of the Christmas Carol, which I remember very nearly and dearly to my heart from childhood, and I don't think anything's done nearly as well. So, boom. Nice. Ross? Nice. Uh, juxtaposing a little bit. Um, uh, Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick is my number two. I was wondering. I, I was just upstairs, and uh, you were talking about uh, like Nicole Kidman sleeping with somebody, having a kitten, and having an abortion, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that sounds like the story to Eyes Wide Shut. And I was like, wait a minute. Is Eyes Wide Shut a Christmas movie? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It is. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, about adultery and about um, monogamy and about what it means to be in a relationship, what it means to be in business, what it means to be successful and in relationship. And you see this couple over a long period of time go through a lot of changes in their lives. And uh, they're, it's a great film. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's a great film. And one of Kubrick's best films and definitely one of the best performances by Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Also filled to the brim with esoteric symbolism. Yes, definitely. Or, uh, esoteric symbology, sorry. No, absolutely it is. It is with symbol there's a lot of symbolism uh and a lot and there's like an orgy which I have to say for a Christmas movie is a little out of the ordinary but but the actors are completely professional about it. None of it's done. Very Merry Christmas indeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. None of it's professionally done. Merry well, Christmas n- at that. None of it has is is done with any and no pun intended with any tainting of the actual work. It's actually all or the very taint. Yeah, or the taint. It's very it's actually really very artfully, tastefully done. These people don't want to be in the situation, but they don't have power, so they, they have to be. Boom. Uh, I, I would have thought about that if I had realized that was a Christmas movie. Anyway, going on to Grando Calrissian, what's your number two? My number two, me, my number two is Home Alone, uh, a fantastic holiday movie that I just remember from growing up. Uh, I'm gonna bite your fingers off one by one. <laughs> yeah. It's not the best line from that movie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, regardless, it was an excellent movie, uh, and that's why it's my number two. He's a burglar, but all of a sudden he becomes a sadistic, crazy mobster who's a cannibal. <laughs> the puzzle! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry that Home Alone won't make my list, because it just didn't quite make my list, and Eyes Wide Shut won't make my list, because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, That's what I was trying to ask you. Yeah, no, and I was telling you, I was telling you, it's not on my list, but I put it on the phone list, the master list we developed, 
for posterity because I knew some people probably had seen it and it came up in a search of Christmas movies. Well, to be fair, Brady, I haven't seen The Apartment, so it's all good. Uh, yes. Well, who said anything about The Apartment? Well, I just hear it's a great film, that's all. Oh, I haven't yeah. seen a lot of it. Oh, movies. yeah, that was on the master list. What is your number two, though? My, my number two is... Um, Something that stands as uh, easily Brian Cox, easily one of the best uh, <laughs> comedies of the '80s, and you know is in the pantheon of best comedies of all time. As far as I'm concerned, it's a Christmas story. Uh, it's hilarious, and not not only are the jokes still funny all these years later, but I notice kind of like more sensitive, arty things. Like I, I love the performance of the father. The father's like he's great. so cool, and like how like. Because as a kid, I was like, he's kind of scary. I was more in the kid's perspective. Yeah. And as an adult, I see, like, even when he's punishing the kid, I was just like, oh, fuck, a kid swore. Oh, shit. That's another <laughs> thing I got to deal with. And these fucking dogs are trying to eat my turkey. Like, I'm really fixated on the father who's just like, uh, just give him the fucking gun. Jeez. Oh, he wants the gun. Let's get him the gun. Exactly uh, how I'm going to be when I'm a yeah, father. It's, it's, so, it's a movie that ages very well as a result. Uh, because it, it's got empathy for its adult characters and kid characters. And it's goddamn hilarious. Yeah. It's a great movie. Madeline will be like, Rob, look, no, we can't give him the ray gun. He might shoot another child. Just give him the ray gun and tell <laughs> Nomi shoot cans. Like, <laughs> We had metal bullets when I was a kid. Nothing ever happened. Yeah, and he'll, do, he'll get his friend Pompey to shoot the kid instead. Pompey. <laughs> Uh, anyway, my number one is uh, my number one is yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. Uh, Mary, where's my pills? I need my pills to be able to think right. Oh, thanks. There's my pill. Let the me just take this down. Death of a Wonderful Life. <laughs> uh, I've had my pill. Oh, now I remember what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> my, my number one Christmas movie, as everyone's, it should be. Uh, it's a wonderful life, and Clarence and angels and bringings of bells, and every time an angel sings, <laughs> every time a Guido sings, an angel gets his wings. Oh wait, no, no. Wait, is that the, how that goes? Are no. you sure? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a good thing. We don't have nearly enough listeners to have an Italian demographic to offend. I don't want to get shot. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a quote from the Saturday Night Live with Jim Carrey playing Jimmy Stewart making fun of Jim Carrey. Oh, nice. Ah. Very nice. Anyway, It's a Wonderful Life, my number one. As well, it should be everybody's. Because, come on. I've seen that as a fucking uh, play. Actually, at uh, oh. Dean Lesher Center for the Arts. How was it? Oh, it was really good. I mean, I mean, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be home fucking around with computers because I was nine. But yeah. Cool, cool. Okay, I'm sorry. It was number four. It's still pretty good. Steve, goddamn it! It's Christmas. Just get the. <laughs> Brady's back goat back. Steve is attacking him. You'll have to forgive him. So. <laughs> Um, my number two, or number one, wow, yeah, number one, um, uh, an addendum, I, I brought up the apartment for no reason at all, at all, but, um, my number one is also It's a Wonderful Life, uh, I've seen it maybe 18 times, and, um, 
it's a great movie. Christmas is only in the film in the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. It's not about Christmas. Christmas just becomes a metaphor for what it's really about, which is about family and being selfless and giving things away instead of trying to hold on to things all the time. I wonder if it tastes like sugar. Sugar plum. It does, especially when George gets saved from the ice. When his brother is there to save him, it tastes quite like sugar plums. I agree. It tastes yeah. quite like sugar. Plums. And that scene moved me. Even when I was like eight, I was really moved by that scene when he saves his brother. I was moved by all of the the, the scene where he meets his wife for the first time is a great yeah. scene. How about when he keeps so, the embittered man from like accidentally poisoning someone? That was amazing. That's an amazing scene yeah. too. Like the movie uses the tree and the idea of God and community at the end as a way to like hammer home that we're all in it together. But the movie is about figuring out that we can all help each other. And only the end does it ever talk about Christmas as a way to help do that. But it's powerful because of everything that leads up to that. Oh, a quick aside. We have to say, uh, we have to make reference to the Simpsons joke where they're like, Hey, your, your, your money's not here. It's in Jim's house or Bill's house. Hey, what are you doing with my money, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> While you were gone, we did the Beavis and Butthead joke. I, I heard that bit. Yeah, but yeah. So, yeah, it's a wonderful life. Beautiful film. Uh, well, then, my number one is not in any of your top sevens, unless it's Pretty's number one, which... I don't think any of us have seen it. it. Neither do I, yeah. Uh, which is White Christmas, uh... An older movie. Uh, no, Red Christmas. No, White Christmas. Oh. Uh, watched it growing up, uh, kind of on Christmas, kind of my grandma's house. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's just that movie about Christmas that uh, really makes me think about that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, and Christmas to me kind of means snow, which mm. we lack around these parts. <laughs> And in my that, heart, it means that snow. adds to the that adds to the nostalgia of it, and thus White Christmas is my number one. Nice. Hmm. All right. I like how Grandy always like whenever he like has something to say, he's like kind of <laughs> means he like just puts his his hand up with and rubs his his three fingers with his thumb. He's just like it kind of means give me some money, or it kind of means Christmas, <laughs> or it kind of means anything I'm gonna say right here. But it kind of means that, so give it. Anyway, Brady, sorry. <laughs> okay, so so earlier I said there were two movies that were much less about Christmas than the others, and number one is my second. Uh, but I think I can defend it uh, because it's a brilliant movie, and I think it uses the fact that it's around the holidays, kind of like what Ross was saying about It's a Wonderful Life, about like what the innocent symbolizes, and it uses it in like ways that are both cynical and optimistic, which is why this is one of the best movies ever in my book, and that's um, Billy Wilder's The Apartment from 1960. Uh, and it's about a kind of trying to make it little bureaucrat like an Edward Norton and fight fight club type who rents his apartment out like to uh, executives basically to have affairs. So executives cheat on their wife in his place. And so he gets to grease palms with the executives and be friends with them, even as he knows that they're total shits and he's selling a little bit of himself and occasionally his ability to sleep in his own house to do so. And so without giving too much away, He's friends with this elevator woman who ends up being in an affair. 
has been having an affair with his boss. So his boss, his new boss, has been cheating on his wife with this woman he's in love with, and she tries to commit suicide on Christmas in his apartment. And the scene where he comes home to it is one of the most brilliant, like, humorous, tragic, just, like, great scenes in all of cinema. And, and that's the plot synopsis for the movie we watched this week. The apart. Oh, wait. No, we're doing Rank It. Yeah, anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that is The Apartment. It's uh, one of the best films ever made. Uh, and a brilliant mark in the careers of uh, Shirley MacLaine and Jeff Sorry, Lemmon. I had to do that, too. <laughs> no, that's no, okay. You just really need to see The Apartment. <laughs> I have seen it. It's horrible. Oh, wait, no, that was something else. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll see it. You're thinking Joe's Apartment. Joe's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. horrible. is talking to Joe. Uh, I think that's the end of Rank It. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Rank It. Bitch. Hi, everybody. We're back. I hope you enjoyed this holiday special on Die Hard. And this is Rob signing off for Brady Larson, Grando Calrissian, and Ross Murray. Happy holidays. Yippee-ki-yay, Include... motherfucker. <laughs> Carnivorous couch. It happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. <laughs>